0: can see you struggling, don't you think that I can feel your pain, I hear your cries every time,
1: in the middle of... Greetings and welcome to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mullett. Uh, you can visit our website at logicalbelief.org. You can watch these podcasts on YouTube. You can search for and subscribe to our channel there. Uh, you can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Logical Belief. Um, both the audio and the video can be found at our website, uh, just right there on the far right of the top menu bar. Just go ahead and click on Podcast. Um, if you want to send me a word of encouragement, or you um, have a question that you want to have answered on the air, you can just drop me an email at Jason um, at LogicalBelief dot um, If Uh, However, just be aware that if you are sending me an email, uh, you are permitting me to read it on the air. So um, today, what we're going to do on this uh, episode is we are going to continue and hopefully finalize our review of the uh, uh, Bonson-Stein debate and uh, continue our discussion on presuppositional apologetics. Um, But um, before uh, we jump into that debate, I have the audio queued up uh, from where we left off uh, last week. Uh, but before we get started with that, um, I want to address something uh, uh, rather quickly here um, <clears throat> that uh, came up in a Facebook discussion on the Facebook group uh, for the Bible Thumping Wingnut. Um, uh, if you haven't heard of the Bible Thumping Wingnut, they're uh, another podcast, uh, which I would highly recommend. Um, Matt Slick from CARM, uh, org is on that podcast uh, every Sunday night, I believe. And um, you should really join that and uh, listen to Matt engage with... Um, with unbelievers, a lot of atheists uh on that show uh will come in and join on the Google Hangout. Um uh, but also, I mean, they've had everything from Jehovah's Witnesses to Catholics. Um I think even the occasional Mormon has been there. So so it's it's an interesting experience and it's uh it's there's a lot we can learn from that. But uh I am part of the Facebook group for the Bible Thumping Wingnut and uh last week uh someone had posted a comment um about presuppositional apologetics and had uh made a statement which I had I had written an answer to but I want to I want to kind of address this issue so that um that those of you out there that are are new to presuppositional apologetics I, I want you to understand uh, kind of what we're not saying uh, those of us that are presuppositionalists, and and what our intention really is with the apologetic and really why we use the apologetic. So let me just address the uh, the question. The person who posted the question, um, I, I won't mention his name. Um, I, I didn't get his permission to use it. But I'll, I'll just go ahead and read the question um, that, that he posted on the Bible Thumping Wingnut um, website. I'll, I'll give my answer to it. And I'll give uh, Paul Taylor also uh, said something in response uh, to it. He is from uh, the Creation Today ministry, Eric Hovind's uh, ministry, Uh, and I liked his comment in response to this also. But uh, the the question on the the page, the questioner said, uh, over the years of studying apologetics, I've found myself moving uh, more towards the presuppositional approach, combined with the TAG argument, TAG is short for the transcendental argument, um, over the classical evidential methods. Although I believe all the methods are very valuable, and I tend to blend uh, the all, I blend, uh, I'm not sure, he's not very clear on how he writes this, uh, all depending on the situation. Uh, listening to men like Greg Bonson, Matt Slick, Saiten Bergenkate, Jeff Durbin, and Dr. Frank Turek, in his book subtitled Stealing from God, How Atheists Need God to Make Their Case, has shown me that the atheist steals truth, logic, reason, morality, etc. from out of God's pocket before they throw him over the cliff. Apologists like Dr. Turek use some forms of presuppositionalism to argue for a generic God. Then from there he uses other evidences to get to the Christian God while other presuppositional apologists presuppose the Christian God, then argue from that starting point. So this leads to my question. How can we show that it is the Christian God that is the necessary precondition for intelligibility and not any other God like Allah, um, the God of Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, etc.? Thanks in advance. And so um, I I wrote a response to this, and so I want to go ahead and and give you what my response was to his question, um, and maybe this will clarify uh, this for some of you out there. Um, but I, in response to that, I wrote, uh, The triune nature of the God of the Bible and his attributes are a necessary precondition to justify reality and the human experience. Um, and, I'll, and I might have an episode on this to kind of more thoroughly break this out, But um, I just go on here, God's immutability, his transcendence, his omniscience and non-contingency and multi-personal nature, his triune nature, are necessary. For example, we are personal beings that interact with other personal beings, and God reveals moral mandates that govern the interaction between persons that come from his own character and nature. If God is not multi-personal, the second table of the Ten Commandments could not come from his nature. If God is love, but he is Unitarian, how can that love be a part of his nature if he cannot, as a part of his own being, demonstrate that love from eternity? The point with presuppositionalism is that due to the noetic effect of sin, we are unable to work backwards from our experience and conclude the God of the Bible. God must... Condescend to us and reveal his nature so that we can presuppose him to justify reality. Classical and evidentialism attempts to circumvent the deadness the Bible says we have as, re- as a result of sin and give arguments that the unbeliever can use as a stepladder to reach God, but that is not possible. The unbeliever cannot reach God, according to Scripture. Um, and uh, And there's even logical arguments due to God's nature, his perfection, his immutability, that there's no way for us as creatures to to reach for God. Uh, you can even read my article on Is Faith a Gift from God to more thoroughly understand that uh, from, uh, which is on my website. Um, the unbeliever cannot reach God. God must reach for him. Um, and uh, somebody else commented after my post on that and said uh, that he does not argue... F- uh, he says, "I do argue for general theism, and then argue for Christianity in particular through historical evidence. That is what practically every Christian apologist did until Kant and Hume attacked the traditional proofs. Van Til and Gordon Clark and others brought in into these attacks and invented presuppositionalism. Jesus Himself gave evidences for Christianity. That's enough for me. He mentions Acts one three and John ten, etc. And then." Um, So I I responded to this, Um, I I wrote that God never, or Jesus, um, never abandoned the authority of Scripture. He always held people accountable to it and presupposed its truth and did not attempt to prove the Word of God to be true. Modern evidentialists abandon the authority of Scripture and accept the unbelievers' pretended neutrality as true when Scripture says specifically that they are not neutral. And then I wrote here, and, and I want to make sure that everybody's clear with this, I am not opposed to evidence as long as the truth of the Bible is presupposed. And the unbeliever's claim of neutrality, which the Bible says that he is not, um, is not accepted. Um, there are times where evidence, evidences can be used in a proper way, but they need to be used in such a way as to hold the unbeliever without excuse. Because scripture says that he's without excuse. So Paul Taylor also responded to this. Uh, and and I thought uh, what he said was, was really good. And so I, I wanted to mention this. It says, if you argue first a general theism and then try to argue for Christianity, I suggest that you are, without realizing it, arguing for an idol. And um, I would completely concur with that. So the one thing that, I want to make sure that uh, that uh, people understand out there is that uh, as a presuppositionalist, at least for myself, I am not a presuppositionalist because the argument is effective. And, and that's the dangerous thing um, out there. there's There's many people that are adopting presuppositional type arguments because they see that they're effective. But that's not why we should not pragmatically determine our apologetic. Our apologetic needs to be determined by the word of God. And so I'm a presuppositionalist because of the word of God. And if we're a presuppositionalist simply because it seems to be pragmatically effective, I think you've completely missed the boat on this one. And I um, You know, I I would encourage you to go back to 1 Peter 3.15. We need to set apart Christ as Lord first before we prepare to make a defense for the reason of the hope that is within us. And in doing so, we have to place ourselves under the lordship of Christ. We have to place ourselves under the lordship of Scripture. And if we are using presuppositional-type arguments to argue for general theism and then give evidences like, you know, Work with with other sort of evidences, you know, you know the the resurrection, or um, which I'm not opposed to, as long as the the uh, presupposition of Scripture being true is upheld, and the unbelievers' excuse due to um, the evidence and the fact that he cannot even examine evidence without presupposing truth and presupposing God. Um, is he's his feet need to be held to the fire um, with these things because um, the Bible says he he actually knows these things are true. Um, the other thing is I also want to make sure that is is clear is that presuppositionalism doesn't really work from any other theistic worldview. Um, all other forms of Deity whether it's the God of Islam or uh, the God of Mormonism or even Jehovah's Witnesses for that matter or, or whatever theistic um, Hinduism Brahman or or whatever these deities general deities do not satisfy the preconditions of the metaphysical makeup of human beings um, of, of uh, epistemology um, rationality. They, they don't they don't uh, satisfy those and their worldviews are logically and internally inconsistent and incoherent and so they are by necessity false and if the biblical God is true and he does satisfy the preconditions and the Christian worldview is consistent then by necessity all other worldviews must be false and um, And so, I mean, Scripture says, you know, uh, in in Psalms, um, our God uh, made the heavens and all the other um, gods of the nations are idols. And so, uh, since we presuppose the word of God to be true, and it provides a rational basis for all of the human experience and reality and reasoning and rationality, then by necessity, all other deities are false gods. Um, And... Um, it is an abandonment of what presuppositionalism really is intended to be, uh, to use it to argue for a general theistic position and then use some sort of other evidences outside of scripture to, um, to, uh, to try to bring people to understand that this general theistic position that you've brought them to, um, is now the God of the Bible, um, I just I don't see that as a as a biblical uh, position to hold um, everyone knows the God of the Bible does exist and in my use of the transcendental argument um, and of presuppositionalism um, I include scripture in that argument all the time I'm always quoting scripture um, when uh, Just recently when I was um, out to lunch with a friend of mine and a homeless guy, uh, a friend of mine who's an atheist, and my friend asked me about the problem of evil. Um, Where did I take him to? I took him to Romans 9, and I pointed out that God himself reveals that he has a purpose for the evil that he allows He uses it to work all things together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's Romans 8. But in Romans 9, he uses uses it to demonstrate his justice. He permits and decrees evil to occur in order so that he can demonstrate his justice. And then at the same time, so that the vessels of mercy, whom he has called, can see how much mercy God has actually given them, and they can. It is, um, and it glorifies God. It it's it recognizes for us those of us who have been saved what we have been saved from, and so God has a purpose for this. So we go to Scripture to give these sorts of answers instead of giving these uh, long philosophical answers uh, devoid of Scripture, and then try to somehow. Prove to them that scripture is true when we haven't used scripture presuppositionalism and the transcendental argument needs to include always the um, the use of, of, of scripture. And and that would be one thing that I would say, even in this debate between Bonson and Stein. Um, Bonson doesn't necessarily quote a lot of scripture. He uses a lot of arguments that really come from scripture itself and statements. Uh, so. um I wish that he would directly quote more scripture, um, but um, but that that's really what the presuppositional apologetic is. It, we, we should not be accepting it simply because it pragmatically works, uh, but instead that it is biblical. So um, I think—oh, uh, I wanted to actually—before I go to the debate, debate I did want to also—I found this article— on um a blog i found uh, somebody actually in that particular thread that i was referring to on facebook um linked to an article which uh, i thought um this was uh this was pretty good uh there's a couple things that i would i would uh, s- say a little differently here but um, there's a blog called doctorreluctant.wordpress.com and he has a um article on here the biblical god the precondition of intelligibility and um he uh he lists um the different uh parts of reality in the human experience and he then denotes what part of god what attribute of god and what part of his being and his ontological nature are the necessary preconditions for these things. Um, And the first one that he lists here is logic and reason. He says the precondition for this is a God who is immaterial and perfectly rational, is immaterial, perfectly rational, I think is what he means to say. He says rationality. Uh, Morality, uh, the precondition of God who is righteous um, because he, his own nature is the standard for what is righteous, a uh, truth, um, a God who is unchanging truth, um, you know, immutable truth, God's immutability, uniformity, God who upholds, um, uh, regularity, uh, providence, uh, the order in the universe, a God who imprints his order on creation, um, Love, God who is love and demonstrates it. And this is one thing that I think uh, presupposes the triune nature of God. Um, love is something that God has demonstrated from all eternity. Uh, beauty, a God who is artistic and gives us um, aesthetic abilities. Uh, language, a God who speaks, uh, which is part of his personal nature. A uh, good, um, a God who is perfectly good. Um, that's because once again, his own nature is the definition of what is good. He is the standard. Um, for him to not be good would f- be for him to deny his own nature, deny himself. Um, so there's just um, the one and many, uh, the philosophical problem of the the one and many, um, is. Uh, uh, presupposes the uh, the triune nature of God. The triune nature of God is the it can be the solution to the one and many problem. I think John Frame uh, touches uh, upon this, and I think Van Til may also. I haven't read much of what Van Til says about this yet. Um, and so, uh, if you want to check that out, uh, you can you can go to uh, drreluctant.wordpress.com and just uh, search for his. Um, post the biblical God, the precondition of intelligibility. So, um, Okay, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into the debate and continue examining and discussing uh, what goes on here. So let's uh, just jump right in here. Uh, the last uh, week we ended with uh, with Stein giving his opening remarks in the second half of the debate
2: in addition we have a number of things which I wouldn't call proofs but I would call evidence which make the existence of God even more improbable and one of them is the problem of evil if an all-good God exists why is there evil in the world we were told with God that all things are possible if it was possible if all things are possible, it would be possible for him to create a world in which the vast mass of suffering that is morally pointless, such as the pain and misery of animals, the cancer and blindness of little children, the humiliations of senility and insanity were avoided. These are apparently inflictions of the Creator himself. Or else
1: I'm going to jump right away in here again. Um, in the original presentation that I did on, on presuppositional apologetics, I talked about when the unbeliever... Uh, talks about evil, the problem of evil, um, or he talks about anything being good, um, anything like this, good or evil, he is presupposing the existence of God because in his naturalistic worldview, there can be no such thing. Um, uh, About a year and a half ago, I was out to lunch with uh, the same atheist friend I was actually uh, just a couple weeks ago, and he asked me again, he asked me back then the problem of evil, and I gave him um, a similar answer back then as I did uh, just a couple weeks ago again. But uh, he he posed that question, and I, and I, and I asked him, I said, so, uh, his name is Nick, I said, so Nick, you, you look out into space, you know, if, if your naturalistic worldview is true, and we're just stardust, okay, I said, Nick, you've never, you know, no one's ever looked out into space and observed You know, two stars about to collide into one another and said, um, you know, the star on the left is is evil and the star on the right is 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 good. And the evil star is is destroying the good star. No, it's it's an amoral act of material matter just bouncing off one another. And if that's all we are. If that's all we are, if we're just stardust, then when stardust wipes out stardust, who cares? By saying that when a bag of stardust wipes out another bag of stardust, that's evil, you have to presuppose that the God of the Bible exists for that proposition to even make sense. And so that's where the atheist is completely inconsistent with his even raising the problem of evil from the position of his own worldview. What he's done is he's jumped once again into our worldview, borrowed capital from it, and then turned around and tries to use this against our worldview.
2: We have a God that isn't omnipotent. If you admit that, then you deny his goodness. If you say that he would not have done otherwise, you deny with him things that are possible, all things that are possible. So the atheist can present several arguments which sort of increase the probability that there isn't a God. They're not proofs, as I said. One of them would be the problem of evil. The idea is that the presence of evil is incompatible with an all-good, all-knowing, and all-powerful God as Dr. Bonson suggested he believes in. Now he could come up with a statement that injustice in this world may well be corrected in the next world. But that would be something that he would be making without any evidence whatsoever. Just again, wishful thinking. He could also say that, get out of this.
1: Once again, if we, if the God that you're presupposing here in order to make your argument exists, then the answer that God will actually has a has a purpose and a reason for the evil that that is in the world right now, and that at some point in the future, He will rectify this situation he will provide justice and he will usher in a new creation in which there there is no evil yeah dr bonson can actually justify that claim because the god that you're presupposing in your objection right here in your argument the god that you're presupposing is the one who has revealed that he actually does do that
2: By saying that God is not all powerful, that some things, some evil things are done without his permission, so to speak. In which case, his statement that he believes in an omnipotent God is falsified. He could also say that the old argument about free will, which is uh, basically a morass into which he may fall if he wishes, will not do. To say that God gave man free will and therefore he can choose between the evil and good is to imply that God was unable to make a man who could examine both sides and always choose the good. That, In other words, he's limited. and only. Um,
1: you know what? That is actually what God does. When we um, will be in heaven, in the new heaven and the new earth, we will be sealed in righteousness. We will still have a free will, but we will be unable to sin against God. We will be sealed in righteousness. So, The position of the Christian is, is that God actually has a good intention and a purpose for the evil that he does allow now. And in Ephesians chapter 1, he works all things after the counsel of his will. And in Romans chapter 8, he works all things together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And we even see examples in Acts 2 and Acts 4 were God predestined before creation um, that Jesus Christ would be crucified, um, which was a heinously wicked act, evil act, but yet God's intention in that act was was pure, perfect, and good, with His intention of redeeming His people from their sins. So, <clears throat> um, Bonson's argument. Uh, or not Bonson here, Stein's uh, argument uh, is... The way you can do it is to
2: let man completely choose for himself, as if that would take something away from man if he could examine both sides and still have the guidance within himself to always choose the good. Now, there's no obvious physical evidence of a God. If God wanted man to believe in him, man or woman, people... He could only have to do is put in an appearance before a group of people, especially a group of atheists. In fact, we invite him to our meetings to put in an appearance. and <clears throat> that way, anyone would believe in him except a fool. Well, the Christian says that this may sound logical to you, but it doesn't to God. God evidently wants man to believe on faith without a- adequate evidence. Well, if he did, if he does, then why did he give man the power of reason, and why did he give man more reason than any other animal has? If all we living things on the earth were created by a God, and He was a loving God, so Stein
1: here is making a very common argument that um, I've uh, <clears throat> I, I've heard quite often, and is that you know if if God would you know make an appearance, you know th- then would we believe Him? But but let's see what what Scripture um, actually uh, says about that. In Matthew twenty-eight verse seventeen, um, Jesus uh, makes an appearance—a post-resurrection appearance—and it says here: "And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted." So, does according to Scripture, does God making an appearance an obviously miraculous appearance—they they knew Jesus had died, um, and here he was now before them again. Um, very good evidence, but what does it say? It says, some still doubted. The, the unbeliever, when he has a confirmed bias against God, it, it really doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter what what sort of evidence happens. He will, he will conclude, according to his worldview, he will conclude that while he may not have an explanation for what he just saw, uh, sometime in the future, he will um, obtain a naturalistic explanation for, you know, what just transpired in front of him. So, uh, God making some sort of a miraculous uh, appearance or doing something uh, to, in front of the atheist as he demands uh, would not cause the atheist to, to simply believe in God. Ah, uh, the other thing is, if God is at the beck and call of the atheist to show up whenever He demands Him to show up, then He's also not God.
2: God, who made man in His own image, how do you explain the fact that He must have created the tapeworm, the malaria parasite, tetanus germs, polio, ticks, mosquitoes, cockroaches? And fleas. Now, surely the dog is not suffering from original sin and, and, and needs to be infected with fleas so that he can get to doggy heaven, which will be better than his present life. The standard answer of theists to this kind of question is things have to be better after death. You know, we have these things on earth, it's a veil of tears, so to speak. Doesn't make much sense. I mean, any God that would punish a man for what his ancestors did is not a very moral God. I'm talking about original sin now, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. There are many instances on the earth in which no distinction seems to be made between the innocent and the guilty, between the Christian and the non-believer, for example, the natural disasters like an earthquake or a fire. kills. Christians, it kills babies, it kills animals, it kills non-Christians. You certainly can't say that these people were punished in some way for something that they did. It also demolishes churches and hospitals without distinction. Is this, isn't this evidence that at the very least, whatever force there is controlling these things doesn't care if people are Christians or not, or whether they're innocent or not? If there's only one God and he cares at all how he's worshipped,
1: <clears throat> um once again here this is why theology matters is that um either stein doesn't doesn't know but w- when he says that that human beings are innocent um uh, that's not the christian position the christian position is romans 5 that we're all guilty in adam um we've we've also personally sinned against God, but we're also by nature fallen creatures. <clears throat> and so um all of us, even at birth, um, are objectionable to God. Um, we're we are fallen, we are children of wrath, Ephesians chapter two, uh, by nature. So uh Stein is... Um, is rejecting here um, the biblical biblical anthropology about the human nature.
2: Why are there so many different conceptions of God and so many different religions, all claiming to be the one true religion? Does this mean that they're all mistaken? Does it mean that one is correct and all the others are mistaken? There's an old joke about an atheist in which he said, To a believer, you know, you believe that 99 of the 100 gods are false. I just go one step further and say that the 100th one is also false. So I'm sure that Dr. Bonson, in fact, he even agreed that he would help me refute any other gods but the Christian God. If Christianity is the one true religion, why are so many people who sincerely believe in it found in prisons, slums, and in organized crime? I'm not saying that all people there are Christians. I'm not saying that all people in organized crime are Christians either. But it evidently, if Christianity led to an elevation of moral standards, which we haven't gotten into yet about morality, but I'm going to jump the gun here a little bit, Christians would be expected to be highly moral, not less moral. In fact, studies of the religious beliefs of prisoners have shown that almost all were devout Christians. The number of atheists is less than 1%. And these statistics were in fact so disturbing to the people who conducted them that they stopped collecting them recently. Can't argue with the facts, though.
1: Any system which seems to fail... This brings up an issue that's uh, been kind of a contention for me, um, <clears throat> especially even with the, the Josh Duggar situation, um, is that Christians, since they the the modern evangelical church is not representing the gospel um, in in the proper way so the world all they see is us touting morality um, touting God's moral law from a holier-than-thou position. If, if Christians used God's law in its proper usage, which is we do stand on God's law, but we do not do that separate from the gospel and with a humility that acknowledges to the unbelieving world that we are fallen creatures like them who have broken god's law and were it not for the grace of god in our lives we would still be in the state that they are and that and that we need god's grace and we need the gospel But unfortunately, Christianity, modern Christianity, is is represented by, um, or a facet of it, is represented by a group of people that hold to God's moral law, uh, maybe even live somewhat moral lives, and look down their noses at others and and look at how how well i keep god's law and how i must be in myself pleasing enough to god in order to be saved and and that misrepresentation of the gospel is is what is at fault with a lot of these accusations because steins correct many professing christians uh don't do well <laughs> when it comes to measuring up to God's standard and the unbelieving world recognizes this they see this very quickly. They recognize the hypocrisy. Uh, there's no doubt about that um, and it's because they've got God's law also written upon their heart and they they do see when when we fail but that's where we have to come in with humility. And we have to acknowledge our sin. We have to um, acknowledge our repentance and our uh, turning away from that sin. Um, and, and then they can't use that with, with us anymore. Um, my, uh, my, uh, my wife is... Uh, since she has become a Christian, will, in witnessing to her family, will often get a lot of her prior to Christ actions and and sins that her family was well aware of thrown back at her. Well, you were like this. But the answer to that is yes, I was, and by God's grace, I've repented, and I've turned from those sins, and so I cannot justify. My, my being in those sins in the past—it was wrong. It was a violation of God's law, and I, I have repented and praise God and thank God for that repentance, and so that just at that point, that argument is gone. Um, the 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 professing Christian that stands there and says, "This is God's law. I have I've never broken that. I, I've never done anything like that." Um, and, you know, you're a heathen headed for hell um, because you're not as good as I am is is unfortunately sometimes the perspective that the unbelieving world gets. Um, also, the unbelieving world seem, just just cannot seem to have any recognition of what us as Christians, true Christians, uh, say when, you know, we believe in that. That God regenerates our hearts, we're new creations, and those that are true Christians and those that um, are actually followers of Christ are new creations, they have new desires, and they walk with, with God. And so those that profess the name of Christ but do not show any signs of um, having a desire in their heart to follow God and his word and are walking in accordance with God's word— are, are not true Christians. They don't recognize that. Um, the unbelieving world lumps everyone. I mean, the, I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll think Mormons and Jehovah's witnesses and, and Catholics and any obscure aberrant Christianized worldview. They're we're all Christians. Uh, anyone who says they're a Christian, um, you know, even statistics would show that I think, you know, up in the upper 70s, uh, percent of American would still sh- say that they're Christians, even though that number in reality, true Christians, is probably more around between 20 and 15 percent and maybe even less than that.
2: You well, know, in its application as frequently as Christianity does, is not a very good or practical system for mankind to follow. I don't want to get into a real discussion of Christianity, except that Dr. Bonson insists that the Christian God and Jesus and the other evidences that come from the Christian God, uh, concomitants with them, are true and the others are not. What are we left with after this exercise? Well, we can see that we can't prove the existence of God by any rational or logical process, and and Dr. Bonson has not offered us any. We have a factual issue here. Again, as I said, because the proofs fail, it doesn't mean that the existence is disproved. But I think it certainly is unproved. We can, as I will say in my closing statement, this does not leave us in a bleak and and horrible world. There are many, many things that the atheist does with his life which make this world a nice place and enable, enable him to get to the solving of the problems of this world instead of hoping for pie in the sky, which does not seem to be very probable.
0: Thank you, Dr. Stein. Dr. Bonson, can you please have your 10-minute opening statement?
3: You've heard Dr. Stein refer to the transcendental argument uh, and try to dismiss it simply as wishful thinking. Um, If our debate is going to degenerate to that level, then I I dismiss everything that he has said as wishful thinking and uh, delusion and... Why don't we all go home? Uh, No, we're here to argue. We're here to argue a point, and I'm going to see, stay just with the argument that has been proposed and see if Dr. Stein has any better answer than just to engage in name-calling. Dr. Stein proposes an atheist worldview. I propose a Christian theistic worldview. There are other proposals out there that may want their evening to debate as well. I'm maintaining that the proof of the Christian worldview is that the denial of it leads to irrationality. That is, without the Christian God, you cannot prove anything. As one illustration of that, although I want to get into more than that in the second speech, I have referred to the laws of logic. An atheist universe cannot account for the laws of logic. Uh, Dr. Stein, interestingly in responding to that, spoke more about scientific law than he did about the laws of logic, and I'm going to come back to that in my rebuttal to uh, ask about. Uh, his understanding of scientific law. However, we still hear him saying that laws of logic are a matter of consensus and are just this way. That is to say, I don't have to prove that the laws of logic exist or that they are justified. It's just this way. Now, friends, how would you like it if I would have conducted the debate in that fashion this evening? God exists because it's just that way. You just can't avoid it. You see, that's not debate. That's not argument, and it's not rational. And therefore, we have.
1: Um, <clears throat> on uh, YouTube, one time, in a discussion with a uh, with an atheist, um, I asked him to justify um, his ability to reason. How did he know his reasoning was valid? And um, he he said that he just has to assume. And, and I also asked him. Um, how or why? Could he give me any reason for why I should trust that the things that he's arguing and giving me as arguments are, are even valo- valid reasoning uh, if he if he can't justify his own reasoning? I ask him to give me a justification for it. And he said that he can't give me a justification for it. He simply has to assume that his reasoning is valid and that his, his reasoning ability is, is true and and is workable and produces true results. He simply just has to assume that I said, okay, um, how would you take it if I just said, well, you know, I just have to assume the God of the Bible is true. Therefore the God of the Bible is true, which is what exactly what he's doing. And, um, That was it. He actually uh, never responded to that last post and that kind of ended the discussion. Um, There wasn't anything after that.
3: Interestingly, an illustration in our very debate tonight that atheists cannot sustain a rational approach to this question. What are the laws of logic, Dr. Stein, and how are they justified? We still have to answer that question from a materialist standpoint. From a Christian standpoint, we have an answer, obviously, they reflect the thinking of God. They are, if you will, a reflection of the way God thinks and expects us to think. But if you don't take that approach and want to justify the laws of logic in some a priori fashion that is apart from experience, sometimes that suggests when he says these things are self-verified, then we can ask why the laws of logic are universal, unchanging. And invariant truths. Why they, in fact, apply repeatedly in the realm of contingent experience. Dr. Stein told you, well, we use the laws of logic because we can make accurate predictions using them. Well as a matter of fact, that doesn't come anywhere close to discussing the vast majority of the laws of logic. That isn't the way they are proven. It's very difficult to conduct experiments on the laws of logic of that sort. They are more conceptual in nature rather than empirical or predicting certain outcome in empirical experience. But even if you want to try to justify all of them in that way, we have to ask why is it that they apply repeatedly? in a contingent realm of experience, why in a world that is random, not subject to personal order as I believe Christian God, why is it that the laws of logic continue to have that success-generating feature about them? Why should they be assumed to have anything to do with the realm of history, or why should reasoning about history or science or empirical experience have these laws of thought imposed upon it? Uh, Once again, we have to come back to this really uh, unacceptable idea that they're conventional. If they are conventional, then, of course, there ought to be just numerous approaches to scholarship everywhere, different approaches to history, to science, and so forth, because people just adopt different laws of logic. That just isn't the way scholarship proceeds. And if anybody thinks that is adequate, they just need to go to the library and read a bit more. The laws of logic are not treated. As conventions. To say that they are merely conventions to say is simply to say, I haven't got an answer. Now, if you want to justify logical truths along a posteriori lines, that is, rather than arguing that they're self evident, but uh, rather arguing that there's evidence for them that we can find in experience or by observation, uh, that approach was used, by the way, by John Stuart Mill. Um, people will say we gain confidence in the laws of logic through repeated experience and that experience is generalized in um, some weaker moments i think dr stein was trying to say that of course some of the suggested logical truths it turns out are so complex or so unusual that it's difficult to believe anyone has perceived their instances in experience but even if we restrict our attention to the other more simple laws of logic it should be seen that if their truth cannot be decided independently of experience, then they actually become contingent. That is, if people cannot justify the laws of logic independent of experience, then you can only say they apply as far as I know in the past experience that I've had. They are contingent, they lose their necessity, universality, and invariance. Why should a law of logic, which is verified in one domain of experience, by the way, be taken as true for unexperienced domains as well? Why should we universalize or generalize about the laws of logic, especially in a materialistic universe not subject to the control of a personal God? Now it turns out if the a priori and the a posteriori lines of justification for logical truths are unconvincing as I'm suggesting briefly they both are. Perhaps we could say they are linguistic conventions about certain symbols.
1: One thing that I want to make sure that is understood here is that the atheist and, um, in fact, all of us as human beings, we assume the universality of things like the laws of logic. We, We simply assume them to be universal. We assume them to apply everywhere, and we assume them to always function and work. Um, However, we have not experienced every single instant uh, of the use of a law of logic. Um, We haven't experienced them over the entire universe. To, To have that experience you would, would require omnipresence and omniscience. You would require God's attributes in order to actually um, have this and justify um, our, our knowledge that they are indeed universal. But here's the thing. We all know they're universal and we use them as if they are universal. But we are finite creatures that don't have these attributes. So how is it that we all have knowledge of these universal abstract entities like the laws of logic? How is it that we all have knowledge of these? And the answer to that is we all have knowledge of these because God has revealed them to all of us. God has given all of us sufficient knowledge For us to exist in his reality and actually function. And in doing so, he has given all of us knowledge and built it right into our DNA and our being. He has given us this knowledge of universals so that we can actually live and function in God's creation. But outside of God, there's no way that we can justify these. No way. There's no way. So when the unbeliever denies God, he's literally pulled the rug out from under himself. He cannot justify why he believes in these universals.
3: Uh, certain philosophers have suggested that the laws of logic would not be taken as inexorably dictated, but rather we impose them, we impose their necessity on our language. They become, therefore, somewhat like rules of grammar. And as John Dewey pointed out so, um, con- you know, so persuasively earlier in the century, the laws of grammar, you see, are just culturally relative. If the laws of logic are like grammar, then the laws of logic are culturally relative too. Why then are not contradictory systems deemed equally rational? If the laws of logic can be made culturally relative, then we can win the debate by simply stipulating a law of logic that says anybody who argues in this way has, uh, got a tautology on his hands, and therefore it's true. Why are arbitrary conventions like the logical truths so useful if they're only conventional? Why are they so useful in dealing with problems in the world of experience? You see, we must ask whether the atheist has a rational basis for his claims. Atheists love to talk about laws of science, laws of logic. They speak as though there are certain moral absolutes for which Christians were just a few minutes ago being indicted because they didn't live up to them. But who is the atheist to tell us about laws? In a materialist universe, there are no laws, much less laws of morality that anybody has to live up to. When we consider that the lectures and essays that are written by logicians and others are not likely filled with just uninterrupted series of tautologies. We can examine those propositions which logicians are most concerned to convey. For instance, logicians will say things like a proposition has the opposite truth value from its negation. Now when we look at those kind of propositions, we have to ask the general question, what type of evidence do people have for that kind of teaching? Is it the same sort of evidence that's utilized by the biologist, by the mathematician, the lawyer, the mechanic, by your beautician? What is it that justifies a law of logic, or even believes that there is such a thing? What is a law of logic, after all? There's no agreement on that question. If we had universal agreement, perhaps it would be silly to ask the question. It's been suggested to you that it's absurd to ask these sorts of things, although the um, analogy that was used by Dr. Stein about the absurdity of asking about the cause of the world is not at all relevant because that isn't what my argument is. By the way, that's not absurd to ask that question either. It may be unnecessary to ask it if you're an atheist, but it's certainly not absurd to ask it. But it isn't absurd to ask a question that I'm asking about logic. You see, logicians are having a great deal of difficulty deciding on the nature of their claims. Anybody who reads in The Philosophy of Logic must be impressed with that today. Some say that the laws of logic are inferences comprised of judgments made up of concepts. Others say that they are arguments comprised of propositions made up of terms. Others say they are proof comprised of sentences made up of names. Others would simply say they are electrochemical processes in the brain. In the end, what you think the laws of logic are will determine the nature of evidence that you will suggest for them. Now, in an atheist universe, what are the laws of logic? How can they be universal, abstract, invariant? And how does an atheist justify the use of them? Are they merely conventions imposed on our experience, or are they something that reflect absolute truth? Dr. Stein tonight has wanted to use the laws of logic. I want to suggest to you one more time that Dr. Stein in so doing is borrowing my worldview. He's using the Christian approach to the world so that there can be such laws of logic, scientific inference or what have you, but then he wants to deny the very foundation of it.
0: Thank you, Dr. Bonson. Dr. Stein, you now have an opportunity to cross-examine Dr. Bonson, This the
2: last 4 minutes. Is mathematics either atheistic or theistic?
3: Foundations of mathematics, yes. Which? Theistic. Theistic? Christian theistic. How do you figure that? From the impossibility of the contrary. No other world you can justify the laws of mathematics or of logic, because no other world you can account for universal and variant abstract entities such as them.
2: Do you think it's fair, since you've pointed out that logicians themselves are in great disagreement about this, the nature of the laws of logic, to, to ask me to uh, explain them in a way that you would find satisfactory?
3: Yes, it's fair. Why? Because this is a rational debate about worldviews. You have a naturalistic worldview. I have a supernaturalistic worldview.
1: Uh, <laughs> once again here, um, uh, Mr. Stein, you ask if something is fair. Okay. Is, is it good to be fair? Is it objectively morally good? to be fair and to deal fairly with other people and if it's objectively morally fair where do you get an objective moral law that says that you should be fair once again borrowing borrowing from the Christian worldview
3: I want something even beginning to be an answer how a naturalist can justify a universal abstract entity I haven't heard one yet
2: okay is logic based upon mathematics No. Never? Not symbolic logic, for example? No. I would disagree with you.
3: Well, if we want to get into Russell and Whitehead and debate those issues, we'd be glad to do that. But if you ask a simple question, I can only give you a simple answer. You said... You said that... Assume the opposite. As far as I'm concerned, as a Christian, I'm not committed one way or another to that. If you want to say mathematical laws and the permutation laws of math are the same as those used in logic, that's fine. How do you justify either one of them is my question.
2: Well, I would ask you a more fundamental question, that as you explained that the laws of logic reflect the thinking of God, number one, how do you know this, and number two, what does it mean?
3: What question, what difficulty are you having? Understanding what does it mean?
2: I don't know how you are privy to the thinking of God. He revealed himself through the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. And desert. that explains the logic. Uh, that explains logic? That explains why
3: there are universal standards of reasoning, yes. Uh, it doesn't explain them to me. Could you explain them again? Yeah, we have Bible studies from time to time where those things can, you know, can be delved
2: into. <laughs> You mean you spend some time rationalizing the irreconcilable, or reconciling the irreconcilable?
3: That's that's, a statement, uh, not a question. Like
2: the two accounts in Genesis, the two pedigrees of... This is a cross-examination.
3: If you have something other than a rhetorical question, I'll try to answer it. Well, it's not
2: intended as a rhetorical question, it's intended as The previous
3: one was rhetorical
2: only. No, it was intended to show that your last statement was disingenuous and... and, uh, Please uh, limit your comments to questions. Yes, okay. Saying that logic reflects the thinking of God is to make a non-statement. How how is that an answer to anything that's relevant in this discussion?
3: It answers the general metaphysical issue of how there can be universal invariant invariant abstract entities in a, in a a particular person's world. If you want to know the precise relationship, for instance, if somebody wants to know how did God make a cow, Okay, the statement that God made the cow doesn't has meaning apart from my being able to explain the mechanics of God making a cow. Likewise, the statement that the laws of logic are intelligible within a Christian theistic universe has meaning because there are things which are in fact spiritual, immaterial and have a universal quality, such as God's thinking and those standards that he imposes on people. And so again, we can at least metaphysically make sense of invariant abstract entities in one universe, whereas we can't make sense of them at all in the other. We're not asking for the mechanics here, or anything precise such as resolving the relationship of logic to math and that sort of thing. I'm simply asking a more general question. If you're an atheist, how is it initially, how in the atheist universe is it possible to have an abstract
2: universal law?
0: Thank you, Dr. Stein. Dr. Bonson, you now have a four-minute opportunity to cross-examine Dr. Stein.
3: Dr. Stein, you made reference to David Hume and his rejection of miracles. Have you also read David Hume in his discussion of induction, or more popularly, the uniformity of nature?
2: long time ago, I I can't recall uh, exactly
3: what he said, but I have read David Hume thoroughly. Were you convinced a long time ago that you had an answer to Hume's skepticism about induction?
2: Can't answer that question honestly. I don't remember what this is at least 15 years ago that I read this
3: Scientific laws were the validity of scientific laws were undermined by Hume when he contended that we have no rational basis for expecting the future to be like the past, or if you will, to be, for there to be, to be types of events so that one event happening can be um, understood as a type of event, so where it's seen happening somewhere else, the same consequence can be expected from similar causation. Hume said we had no rational basis for that.
0: Can we have a question, please, for Dr.
3: Stein? Yeah, I'm trying to set up the question. Hume suggested that there was no rational basis for expecting the future to be like the past, in which case science is based simply on convention, or if you will, habits of thought. Do you
2: agree with Hume? Not on this issue, I don't.
3: Do you now have an answer for Hume?
2: I think he was wrong about that one thing, but he was also right about a lot of other things. Nobody's perfect.
3: What is the basis for the uniformity of nature?
2: I went through this, but I'll be glad to reiterate it. The uniformity of nature comes from the fact that matter has certain properties which it regularly exhibits. It's part of the nature.
1: Um, Mr. Stein, you're just begging the question here. You're simply repeating what uniformity of nature is. We're asking you how you justify it. Don't go back into redefining it again. We're asking you to justify it. You're begging the question.
2: Matter. Electrons, oppositely charged things attract. The same charges repel. Uh, there are certain valences that can fill up the shell of an, ele- of an atom, and that's as far as it can combine.
3: Do all electrons repel each
2: other? If they're within a certain distance of each other, yes. Have you uh, tested all electrons? All electrons that have ever been tested repel each other. I have not tested all. Have you read all the tests on electrons? Me personally, or can I go on the witness of experts?
3: Have you read all of the witnesses about electrons?
2: All it takes is one witness to say no, and it would be on the front pages of every physics journal, and that there are none, so therefore I would say yes, in effect, right, by default.
3: Well, physicists have their presuppositions by which they exclude contrary evidence, too. But in other words, you haven't experienced all electrons, but you would generalize that all electrons under certain conditions repel each other. Just statistically, on the basis of past observation. And we don't know that it's going to be that way ten minutes after
2: this debate. Then. No, but we see no evidence that, that things have switched around either.
3: Um, Do you accept the Zen Buddhist logic that allows for cones, the different kind of logic that you referred to used by Zen Buddhists? I
2: use the word extra logical, and I think that's the right word. It is outside of the normal kinds of logic. And it's not necessarily a different kind of logic, but it's just non-logical, but accepted in place of logic. Is it also, are extralogical things absurd? They may seem that way to us, but, I, but uh, no, I would say they're not absurd in the grand scheme of things. Can, can so,
3: extralogical things
2: be true? Can claims about extralogical matters be true? But that, that's, that's an impossible question to answer because if we're using logic to answer whether something is true or not, then extralogical things are not subject to the, uh, to the analysis given by logic. All
3: right, so are, ex, are claims about extralogical entities allowed or
2: disallowed in your worldview? In my worldview, it depends on what we're talking about. We're talking about things like Zen Buddhists, and they confine themselves to these philosophical speculations there, then yes, we're talking about science, no. Sounds very arbitrary.
0: Thank you. We will now move to rebuttals. Dr. Stein, six-minute rebuttal, please.
1: This is where I think Stein uh, is starting to realize what's what's actually happened to him.
2: I would first like to make one little factual rebuttal about a statement that slipped by in the first speech of, of Dr. Bonson, that, that atheists caused the French Revolution. This is a full statement. Um, The leader of the French Revolution, the most important person, was Robespierre, who was a a Christian. So, I mean, there may have been some atheists there, but that doesn't mean that they caused the French Revolution. There are atheists everywhere. Okay, now, um, we've spent a lot of time talking about logic, and yet I'd like to know why, and this is not a question that's addressed right now for an answer, but just as a put-out for future response, why has... Dr. Bonson stressed the laws of logic so much when he's refused to apply them to the existence of God. I'm not so sure that it's even falsifiable, so therefore it isn't even a statement that can be tested in any way.
1: No, it's not. You cannot falsify the existence of God. He has
2: stressed the laws of logic because he knows that there's no explanation for the laws of logic that philosophers agree upon. This is a trap, in effect. I may have fallen into it. If so, fine. The point is, it's not relevant to his position. To say he doesn't have an answer to the laws of logic either. To say that they reflect the thinking of a god is to make a non-statement. First of all, he doesn't know what the thinking of a god is. All he knows is what has been said by men to be what they thought the thinking of a god might have been many, many years ago. Maybe, if we'd be granting all the possible things in his favor. It's like saying... As I said before, that God created the universe. Unless you explain how he created it, you have not made a statement that has any intrinsic value to it. You may have made a part of a statement, but I want to hear the other half. What is there in the method that God used that we can learn something from? I mean, why did God do it? If you want to be a little bit more nasty, it's not valid to ask science why something happens. We can ask how it happens, but science doesn't try and answer the question why. Theologists, theologians, I mean, do ask the question why and try and answer it. I have not heard an answer as to why God did anything that he supposedly did, nor have I heard how God did it. These are the two most essential, meaningful answers to asking a question. If we don't supply those, we have ducked the whole center of the issue and just given you another mumbling which doesn't go anywhere. give you an example. If I said... How did that car that's parked in the parking lot, that red car right in front, how did it get here? And you say, General Motors made it. That does not explain how the car got here. Now if you want to go and explain that in Detroit, a hundred men worked a certain number of hours to make this car out of steel that they got from Youngstown, Ohio, from a smelting plant, and then maybe we're getting somewhere, so how that car got here. I don't mean how it got on an Irvine campus, I mean how did it get here in existence. So, until we have that kind of an answer, we have not st- say that it, said anything. To say that General Motors made it is not answering the question of how that car got here. Neither is there an answer to say that God made it. And I would ask Dr. Bonson to explain, if he thinks he knows the answer, which none of these philosophers know about the laws of logic, to put his answer in some kind of meaningful language. To say that, it reflect, that the laws of logic reflect the thinking of God is to make a non-meaningful statement. And not just to me, to anyone. I want to know whether God thinks rationally all the time, whether he can be irrational. How do we know when he's being irrational? Is it possible for him to be irrational? I want to know what kind of logic God uses. Does he use the kind of logic that we can demonstrate, that we can test in the same way that we use the logic that we're talking about in science? If so... Should it be impossible for God to contradict himself in any way? Can he make a a stone so big he can't lift it? Is that a logical impossibility? Is God limited by that kind of a thing? Can God make a square circle? I mean, these are little logical games that we play that don't really ask important questions, but they have a, a reflection on some kind of a problem that he is having with his concept of God. And if God can do anything, if he's omnipotent and omniscient and omnibenevolent, can he do those two things I said or asked? And if he does, what kind of logic is he using? The logic of self-contradiction? Until we have some answers to these questions, I don't think we've got very much meaningful from Dr. Bonson in the first place about any issue. He certainly hasn't applied logic to the proofs for the existence of God that have been offered by philosophers.
0: Thank you, Dr. Stein. Dr. Bonson, you now have six minutes allocated for your rebuttal.
3: Dr. Stein has uh, demonstrated, it seems to me repeatedly in the course of tonight's debate, uh, the claim that was made very early on in my original statement, and that's that the atheist worldview cannot give an account of those things which are necessary for rational discourse or science. When asked about uh, Hume and the um, skepticism that he generated about induction or the uniformity of nature, we don't hear an answer coming forth. I don't think there will be an answer coming forth from the atheist worldview. However, Dr. Stein, who is an atheist, has said, and I think this is close to a quote, if there were no uniformity, science would be impossible. Exactly, Dr. Stein. If there were no uniformity, science would be impossible. So on what basis in an atheist universe is science possible? Since in an atheist universe, there's no basis for assuming that there's going to be uniformity. For someone to say, well, it's been that way in all the cases in the past that we know of, and therefore very probably it's going to be that way in the future, is to assume, because you're using probability, that the future is going to be like the past. That is to say, is to beg the very question that's being asked you. Now, of course, if you don't like the tough philosophical questions that are asked you about the nature of laws of logic, how they are justified, the nature of natural law, how it is justified, and so forth, and just to dismiss it as absurd questions or non-questions that no one understands and does not have meaning, it seems to me it's just to uh, try to give medicine to a dead man. You see, it's to say, I'm not going to reason about that because I haven't got an answer to it, and that's just uncomfortable. But you see, these are philosophical questions, which not just Christians, by the way, but all philosophers have had to ask and face throughout the centuries. Dr. Stein doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of giving us an answer how how an atheist worldview can account for laws. Laws of science, laws of logic, laws of morality. And yet he does tell us without them science would be impossible. As for the transcendental argument not being logical, um, I mean, you can claim that, but I yet to see Dr. Stein show any self-contradiction or any violation of the laws of logic in it. And of course, if he were, I would immediately ask him if that law of logic is one of the things that we are necessarily to... Uh, live according to it? we to reason by this law? Or is that just a convention? Should I say, well, it's your convention, but it's not mine? Or is that law of logic, universal and variant, and something that must be followed if we're going to arrive at truth? If it is, then I'm going to ask him how it's possible to have such a thing in his universe, how he can justify it at all. But he hasn't shown any contradiction. He simply, again, called it illogical. Whether it's falsifiable or not, I mean, even asking that question I think shows that Dr. Stein is not really aware of the philosophical nature of the question and debate before us. No, transcendentals are not falsifiable. That's right, but they are very meaningful, the very sorts of things that philosophers deal with all the time. You look at Kant or Aristotle or other philosophers, you'll see they deal with the preconditions of experience. And since they are the preconditions of experience, they are not falsifiable and yet they are meaningful. Um, he says that I do not have an answer to these questions either. Well, I certainly do. It's just he doesn't like the answer. The answer is that God created the world. And this world reflects the uniformity that he imposes on it by his governing. And our thinking is to reflect the same um, consistency or logical coherence that is in God's thinking. How do we learn about those things? He revealed himself to us. Again, these are simple answers. They're the sorts of things Sunday school children learn. But you know, I've yet to find any reason not to believe them. For Dr. Stein to say, well, these aren't answers, doesn't doesn't convince me at all. He says, they're not going to be answers unless I include how it took place. What is God's method and why did he do it? Well, I don't accept those standards. I don't accept that that's a requirement for an explanation at all. And he hasn't given us any good reason except that he's not going to be satisfied or it's unhelpful to him. He says it's a non-meaningful statement to say that the laws of logic reflect the thinking of God. He wants to know things like, can God be irrational? Well, if he had asked those questions in cross-examination, I'd answer them. No, God cannot be irrational. Rationality is measured by the standard of his thinking and his revelation. The atheist worldview cannot account for the laws of logic, cannot account for any universal or abstract entities for that matter, cannot account for the uniformity of nature and therefore cannot account for the uh, successes of science, nor can the atheist universe uh, give us uh, universal and absolute laws of morality. And so on three of the most important issues philosophically that men must face, logic, science and morality. The atheist universe is completely at odds with those things. Well, we have one minute left here. I want to answer very quickly those few things that Dr. Stein brought up in his second presentation so that I might rebut them. He wants to know about the problem of evil. My answer to the problem of evil is this. There is no problem of evil in an atheist universe because there is no evil in an atheist universe. Since there is no God, there is no absolute moral standard, and nothing is wrong. The torture of little children is not wrong in an atheist universe. It may be painful, but it is not wrong. It is morally wrong in a theistic universe, and therefore there is a problem of evil of perhaps a psychological or emotional sort. But philosophically, the answer to the problem of evil is you don't have an absolute standard of good by which to measure evil in an atheist universe. You only have that in a theistic universe, and therefore the very posing of the problem presupposes my worldview rather than his own. God has a good reason for the evil that he plans or allows. Thank you, Dr. Bonson. We have now concluded
0: segment number two of this evening's debate, and we will move very quickly into segment number three, which is closing statements. Dr. Stein has the first closing statement, which will be of a ten-minute duration.
2: Dr. Bonson, in his last response, and indeed throughout his entire talk, has made a number of claims about what's possible in an atheist universe and what is not possible in an atheist universe. All I can say is that he has a very strange conception of an atheist universe and perhaps of the universe in general. First of all, evil in an atheist universe. Yes, indeed, there can be evil in an atheist universe. Evil is by definition.
1: I'm going to actually jump ahead here. Um, (coughs) Stein's uh, final comments here aren't really that noteworthy. Uh, What we'll do here is we'll jump to the end of his remarks here. And uh, I I really do want you to hear uh, Bonson's uh, closing statements here. Um, So we're going to jump up ahead here. Or how about we're going to try to jump ahead here.
2: Let's give this another shot. he was torturing. now I've got an answer for that so I'll go to Dr.
3: Stein likes and maybe some of you out there don't like it but at least I can be our law like because of the inherent character of matter but Dr. Stein doesn't know the inherent character of matter now if you were God then in their heart of hearts they aren't atheists their heart does not say that atheists don't you there can be laws toward me um as you know, far as my to, reason to be
2: true well and if we do them because they're right and make people okay. happy, we will be made happy ourselves by making other people happy. It's a very positive world outlook. It's something which I don't think Dr. Bonson has even mentioned, but it's certainly the other side of the coin. I mean, what happens when you wipe away the God concept? Are you left with nothing? No, you're left with the responsibility that you have to take on yourself. You are responsible for your actions, and also you get the credit for the things that you do. And I would rather have a realistic worldview that gives up a few things that would be nice to have, but just don't happen to be true. And I'd rather operate on a a worldview like that than I would on making a wish fulfillment of things that just are not so.
0: Thank you, Dr. Stein. Dr. Bonson, your 10-minute closing
3: statement. I'm going to begin my closing statement by... Uh, thanking the debate team for inviting both Dr. Stein and myself here for this uh, interesting evening and interchange and thank you all for giving up an evening to discuss what I consider a very important question and I thank Dr. Stein for coming and for his graciousness toward me. Um, As far as my rebuttal, excuse me, my closing statement I need to deal, I think, first of all or perhaps in the entire time uh, analyzing this remark that my statements have been tonight irrational. Well, perhaps they have, but you see saying so doesn't make it so. That's something we just heard as well. And so if my statements had been irrational, then we were going to need some standards of reasoning by which these statements have been shown to be irrational. Um, Dr. Stein has yet to explain to us in even the broadest, simplest, Sunday school child manner that I told you about laws of logic. Uh, laws of science and laws of morality, he hasn't even begun to scratch the surface to tell us how, in his worldview, there can be laws of any sort. And if there can't be laws or standards in his worldview, then he can't worry about my irrationality, my alleged irrationality. The transcendental argument for the existence of God has not been answered by Dr. Stein. It's been debated, it's uh, been made fun of, but it hasn't been answered. And that's what we're here for, rational interchange. The Transcendental Argument says the proof of the Christian God is that without him you can't prove anything. Notice the argument does not say that atheists don't prove things. The argument doesn't say that atheists don't use logic, science, or laws of morality. In fact, they do. The argument is that their worldview cannot account for what they are doing. Their worldview is not consistent with what they are doing. In their worldview, there are no laws, there are no abstract entities, there are no universal things, there are no prescriptions. There's just the material universe, naturalistically explained, in the way things happen to be. That's not law like or universal, and therefore their worldview doesn't account for logic, science, or morality. But atheists, of course, use logic, science, and morality. And In so doing, atheists give continual evidence of the fact that in their heart of hearts they aren't atheists. In their heart of hearts, they know the God I'm talking about. This God made them, this God reveals himself continually to them through the natural order, through, the, through their conscience, and through the very, uh, their very use of reason. They know this God, and they suppress the truth about him. One of the ways we see that they suppress the truth about him, is because they do continue to use laws of logic, science, and morality, though their worldview cannot account for them. Dr. Stein has said the laws of logic are merely conventional.
1: Uh, That's what we were talking about in the presentation on presuppositional apologetics, as they they cannot uh, refrain from using the laws of science, the laws of logic, and the laws of morality. It's impossible for them to do it. And that's that beach ball effect that we were talking about. Um, they're suppressing the knowledge of God. They're saying that they don't know God exists, but then pop, there it goes. They just said, well, that's not fair. Or, um, that's wrong. Uh, that's, that's evil. Oh, well, that's really good. That's commendable. Okay. Well, ought we to do things that are good and commendable? Uh, you know, challenge the unbeliever in his assertion that there are no oughts. And then they'll tell you one minute later things that we ought or ought not to do. Um, they, they will keep that that beach ball is going to keep popping up. And that's where we just address it and just point it out.
3: If so, then on convention he wins tonight's debate, on convention I win tonight's debate. And if you're satisfied with that, you didn't need to come in the first place. You expected the laws of logic to be applied as universal standards of rationality. Rationality is not possible in a universe, it just consigns them to convention. Dr. Stein has said the laws of science are law-like because of the inherent character of matter. But Dr. Stein doesn't know the inherent character of matter. Now, if you were God, he might reveal that to us, as I think God has revealed certain things to us about the operation of the universe. But he's not God. He doesn't even believe there is a God. Since he hasn't experienced all the instances of matter and all of the electron um, reactions, all the other things that scientists look at, since he hasn't experienced all of those, he doesn't know that those things are universal. He doesn't know that the future is going to be like the past. When he says, well, it always has been in the past, and boy, if it changes tomorrow, won't that make the front pages? That's not an answer. You see, we're asking, what justifies your proceeding on the expectation that the future is like the past? To say, well, it's always been that way in the past is just to beg the question. We want to know on what basis your worldview allows for the uniformity of nature and laws of science. Thirdly, we've spoken of laws of morality tonight. He says they have laws of morality. The utilitarian standard of what brings the greatest happiness to the greatest number. Well, that doesn't justify utilitarianism to announce it. He's announced that as his standard. But why in an atheist universe should we live by that standard? Marquis de Sade enjoyed torturing women. Now, why should he give up torturing women so that he might bring greater happiness to those women that he was torturing?
1: One of the things that I often do, um, when talking about morality with, uh, somebody that's denying God is, um, you can reveal their subjectivity. So you ask them, well, you know, are there objective moral standards? And if, if there's not, you know, then, you know, what is morality? And often they'll, they'll, they'll make, the subjective claims that you know it's either the society that determines what morality is, or they'll give some some arbitrary thing that that they assume to be good, and they use that as the standard for for what morality is. But what you can quickly do, and for me, it's at least been pretty effective, is is to demonstrate the subjectivity. Of whatever else they claim, the the moment they deny God as the objective moral law giver, um, they'll say either society determines it, or as uh, Stein here said, that which uh, is causes the greatest good. What whatever standard they give, it doesn't really matter what they give. But simply ask them, okay, well that's what you say, but Bob the atheist over here, um, he says that morality is. Is what is best for himself. What you know, what is uh, pleasing and satisfying to just himself. That's what determines morality. Uh, just just use some sort of standard that's different than the one that the unbeliever that you're talking to claimed. Say, okay, Bob over here makes a different claim than you. Who's objectively right? You or him? Because if he if he says that Bob is wrong. Then he has to be then he's appealing to an objective moral truth that says that Bob's st- subjective standard is the wrong one, and his claimed subjective standard is the objectively true one, which is exactly what he's denying. He's denying objectivity. So uh, it's a quick way to go ahead and demonstrate to them their subjectivity. That they, as I talked about before, they're in a pool of subjectivity. They cannot escape it. They're doggy paddling around it. There's no way for them to get out of it. There's the option of God that they can appeal to, and now they're outside their pool of subjectivity. And now we can actually have rational discussion for, you know, what did God reveal to us um, as objective moral tr- uh, truths, and. Uh, now we can have discussions about how we ought to live our lives.
3: Now I've got an answer for that. So I wonder if Dr. Stein likes, and maybe some of you out there don't like it, but at least I can begin philosophically to deal with that. I have an answer a universal absolute about morality. Dr. Stein does not. He simply has an announced stipulated standard. And if morality can be stipulated, then of course Marquis de Sade can stipulate his own, even as Dr. Stein has stipulated his own. Why should he feed the poor? He says they want to do that. I grant that. My argument tonight has never been that atheists are the lousiest people in the world. That's not the point. Some Christians can be pretty lousy too. But why is it that I call atheists or Christians lousy when they act in the ways we're thinking of? Because I have absolute standards of morality to judge. Dr. Stein does not. And therefore, once again, from a transcendental standpoint, the atheistic worldview cannot account for this debate tonight because this debate tonight has assumed that we're going to use the laws of logic as standards of reasoning, or else we're irrational. that so we're going to use laws of science. We're going to be, uh, we're going to be intelligent men that way. Uh, we're going to assume induction and causation and all those things that scientists do. And it's assumed moral sense. And we're not going to be dishonest and try to lie or just trying to deceive you. I mean, if there are laws of morality, I can just take out a gun right now and say, OK, Dr. Stein, make my day. Is there a God or not? You see, if he argues, oh, no, you can't murder me because there are laws of morality, then of course he's made my day because I win the debate. That shows that the atheist universe is not correct. But if he says, oh, no, there are no absolute standards, it's all by convention and stipulation, that sort of thing, then I just pull the trigger and it's all over and I win the debate anyway. (laughs) Would you expect me to win the debate in that fashion? Absolutely not. You came here expecting rational interchange. I don't think we've heard much from Dr. Stein. I've asked him repeatedly, it's very simple, I don't want a lot of details, just begin to scratch the surface, how, in a materialistic, naturalistic outlook on life, Man and his place in the world, can you account for laws of logic, laws of science, and laws of morality? The atheist worldview cannot do it, and therefore I feel justified in concluding as I did my opening presentation this evening by saying that the proof of the Christian God is the impossibility of the contrary. Without the Christian worldview, this debate wouldn't make sense. The Bible tells us, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Don't misunderstand that. When the Bible uses the term fool, it's not engaging in name-calling, it's trying to describe somebody who is dense in the sense that they will not use his reason as God has given it. Somebody who is rebellious, who is hard-hearted. It's the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, that God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. He calls rhetorically. Where is the wise? Where is the disputer or the debater of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of this world? In a sense, I think what Paul is telling us, if I can amplify and read between the lines, is the whole history of philosophy is an argument for the existence of God. The whole history of philosophy is an argument for the existence of God because of the impossibility of the contrary. Someone who wants to say contrary to what the Bible says about God, let him stand up and answer these questions. Let him show that in his heart he may say there is no God, but he can't live that way. He can't reason that way. In Romans, the first chapter, Paul says God is making himself known continually to all men and persuasively, so that men do not have an excuse for the rejection of the existence of the Christian God. That isn't to say that all men confess this God. Not all will own up to him as their heavenly father. Not all will submit to him. Some continue to rebel. Some continue to devise their fool's errands and rationalizations for why they don't have to believe in him. That's what the Bible teaches. I didn't come here and make this up. I didn't come here tonight to uh, say, well, if you don't agree, you see, you're just being rebellious. That's what the Bible says. What I want you to do tonight is to go home and to consider whether there isn't something to that. Why is it? That some people continue to use laws of logic, laws of morality, laws of science, and yet they have a worldview that just clashes with that, and they just won't do anything to resolve contradiction. Dr. Stein tonight uh, made reference to my doctoral dissertation on self deception. He wondered how relevant it might be. Well, it's very relevant. Very relevant. Because what I do in that doctoral dissertation is to show that there are some people who know the truth and yet work very hard to convince themselves that it's not true. Now, of course, atheists think that's what Christians are doing. I recognize that, and we have to argue what the evidence for and against self-deception is. All I want to leave with you tonight is the fact that self-deception is a real phenomenon. It does happen to people. People who know the truth and yet work very hard to rationalize the evidence, convince themselves, as Paul says, suppress the truth and unrighteousness, convince themselves that there, there is no God. Well, you can choose tonight between the Christian worldview, the atheist worldview. We haven't touched all of the issues that you may want to look into, but in broad strokes, we have touched on a very important issue. If you're going to be a rational man, a moral man, a man of science, can you do so in an atheist universe? I say you can. Thank you, Dr. Bonson.
1: Well, um, that's where I'm going to end. our review of the Bonson and Stein debate. I'm going to thank you guys for joining us. I hope uh, this was, um, of benefit and helpful to you. Um, the one thing I do want to note at the beginning of this uh, podcast, I did note that, uh, I didn't think that, uh, Bonson had used, uh, that much scripture and I want to actually kind of rescind that. Uh, he, he used, uh, uh, quite a bit of scripture there. Um, Uh, At the end, and uh, that's and that's one of the things that I really love about the presuppositional apologetic is that it does not abandon the use of Scripture where we, we don't do what a lot of evidentialists do today where they say, well, unbeliever doesn't believe the Bible is true. You know, we have to prove that the Bible is true first and we can't use the Bible for that and so they abandon the authority of scripture they try to argue the believer to believe that the bible is true and convince them of something that the bible says they they really already know and so um that is it that's uh that's uh, all we have um on this episode uh next uh week um not sure exactly what uh, topic we'll discuss uh, next week, but it'll probably be something on either Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormon, uh, Mormonism. I'm not exactly sure uh, which one I'm going to tackle first. Uh, probably Jehovah's Witness. Uh, so we'll discuss um, that particular worldview and uh, see if we can't uh, help uh, equip uh, those of you out there that are interested in. Um, Talking to those types of people and giving them the gospel and, um, and uh, encouraging them to repent and believe in the Jesus Christ who, who saves and who saves sinners from their sins. So I want to thank you guys for joining us. Um, join us uh, next week and uh, God bless.
0: Don't you know that the unjust Will not inherit God's kingdom And through Adam's offense Condemnation
1: came to man And so